0: You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks off the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor for The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the writer and critic Michael Bracewell, whose new book is Souvenir, which is account of London in the years between 1979 and 1986. Michael, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, Souvenir is, it's not a straight history and it's not quite a memoir. What sort of book you think of it as? I mean, what, what were you trying to do with it?
1: Well, the beginnings of the book were actually quite straightforward. I'd been asked in another capacity whether I would write a book, or a short book anyway, about the phenomenon in the art world back in the late 80s and early 90s called Young British Art, you know, Damien Hirst and all that stuff. And so I started doing this rather aware of the fact that whilst Young British Art was happening in London, I was in fact living in Manchester, so I wasn't maybe best placed to write a book about it. But I did start writing about London and the London art world in particular in the years before Young British Art. And that proved to me, in terms of my interests, to sort of be a way into something because I began remembering London... In the early part of the 80s, the first half of the 80s, and also the late 70s, and what a very, very different city it was, obviously, but also what a particularly intense sort of subculture, to use a ghastly phrase, I don't like the word subculture, but in all the worlds around people making art, making music and stuff, there was some very intense things going on. And... I'm sure everybody else worked this out years ago, but being slow, the penny only dropped with me recently. That period between 79 and 86 was actually the last years before London effectively went digital. It was the end, if you want, of the old electrical, mechanical, service industry city. And it was also, if you want to look at it in kind of, you know, literary terms, it was the end of the modernist city. It was the end of the city, if you want, that had inspired T.S. Eliot and some of his work. And all those very interesting writers, maybe British writers of the 1930s, who I've always been fascinated by, who likewise, in their end of the 20th century, had been obsessed with newness, with experiments, with sort of doing mad things. So I gave up trying to write about the YBAs and uh, thought, I know, I'll try to remember where I saw The Damned or some ghastly punk group. And uh, I went that way. Once I'd got in, I began to find it extremely interesting for all kinds of reasons. And I think uppermost in my thinking was... I've always been slightly wary of men of my age, I'm 63, sort of sitting around getting sentimental about records they used to listen to, you know, 40 years ago and so on. But it did occur to me that for my generation, there was a huge emotional investment in music for a lot of us. Not all of us,
0: but for a lot of us. There was this sort of moment... I mean, it's quite an in-betweeny period you're looking at. I mean, as you say, it's looking forward to the digital age, but there's this after-punk.
1: Mm. It was that mm. kind of
0: post-punk moment, which, yeah. which is sort of neglected.
1: It is a little bit. The site of punk's battleground, the sort of 1976 and all the rest of it, I mean, that's very well-trodden ground, I think, and it's been brilliantly, I and mean, people have written brilliantly about all that. Whereas the post-punk thing, which certainly was the thing that I witnessed first hand, I mean, like loads of people in those audiences at those concerts in London, then I was a product of, you know, the deep leafy suburbs, you know, the total, you know, my punk credentials were zero, you know, but then you discovered an awful lot of the people in those audiences were, you know, you'd be next to somebody dressed like goodness knows what, and they'd work in an old people's home in South End. you know, I mean, it, it was that kind of scene. You're right, it was, it hasn't been looked at as much, and also the overlap into, it might sound a little pretentious now, but oddly it was a kind of acceptable pretentiousness. It, people, I suppose, who were really trying to do something with art, who were looking for a way, and oddly I spoke to a, a now very successful painter who was at St. Martin's School of Art in 1981, and he said what we were trying to do was to give our painting the same excitement that we felt music had. It was an an energised, but as you say, overlooked moment.
0: That crossover, I mean, you you have a, very early on in the book, this extraordinary reading of a pop video that I'd forgotten, I mean, maybe because I'm Mm. younger, but the soft cells what? Ah, yeah. And, as you say, this early pop video... It's absolutely saturated with references to art. Mm. I mean, you've got mm. Warhol, you've got Roy Lichtenstein, you've got, oh, you know, mm. Mondrian in there. You, was oh. that... I mean, nowadays, we probably don't think of most pop as being very art literate. No. But was Soft Cell there an outlier, or was that something that, you know, these two worlds were very close?
1: It's a very good question, I don't really know how close they were. But I do think what's interesting is that in this little period we're talking about, there were, if you want, lots of little micro scenes. And they all sort of overlapped a bit whilst also doing their own thing. So on the one hand, you did have people who were quite genuinely trying to introduce ideas from visual art, from fine art into the music world in in one way or another. And in some cases, very seriously from what you'd call the avant-garde. I remember seeing the punk group Wire many times and Colin Newman, the singer with Wire, I remember waited outside in the lobby of the Janetta Cochrane Theatre after the band had played a very confrontational set because it was pure performance art. I mean, it was, you know, people going nuts, basically. And I remember him sort of basically being there to take the flack from the audience about why hadn't they played the hits. And I heard somebody say to him, you know, what was all that about then? And he just said, well, if we can't take risks, who can? And one example, you know, saw part of their mission to be avant-garde artists. At the other end... I think with the soft sell video you mentioned, it was just, you know, very witty, intelligent styling. I mean, you know, and it's huge fun. It's got, you know, Mary Wilson sort of with this amazing hairdo. And and Mark Almond, in my opinion, I I just think he's so great. I mean, such a huge talent.
0: It's a book that sent sent me back to YouTube many times.
1: Uh, Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yes.
0: Do you think there's a sense in which, at this point, people are sort of looking forward to modernity and the modernists of the 30s were also sort of... There is a kind of... The the idea of the future is very, very wrapped up with the past.
1: Yeah. In Mm. this
0: book. I mean, it seems to me Mm. to be haunted by the wasteland. It is, yes.
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: How do those things connect? I mean, is it just you're saying goodbye to to the city of Elliot's wasteland?
1: It's partly that, saying goodbye to the city... Of Eliot's Wasteland. It's also, there's a little section in the book. I mean, the book is written, as you will have seen, as a series of vignettes, really. And each little section, each vignette tends usually to look at a place and a time more than, for instance, a particular record or a particular band or something. And there's one little section called A Statement to Rally Around which is describing a young woman sitting in the cafe of the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Art on the Mall, in the early 80s, and she's looking through a photography magazine. The question is asked, what would be her generation's statement to rally around? And that question came from a book I was reading about the Auden generation. And this intriguing thing that the people who had either fought in the First World War or not fought in it, but had family members or friends, school friends who did fight in it, after the First World War, they felt there was only one document that they could rally around, one statement for their generation that they could actually relate to. And this was T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. The author of this study said that he thought one of the reasons they rallied to it was because a lot of it was almost incomprehensible. And that intrigued me. I thought, wow, you know, imagine sort of that, that you feel so, if you want, generationally displaced that you rally to something that you don't fully understand. So in my little vignette, this young woman tries to think, well, what would her generation, her post-punk generation, what would it be? Would it be the Sex Pistols album? Would it be Andy Warhol? You know, would it be a book she's read on feminism, Simone de Beauvoir? What would it be? And she doesn't really come to a conclusion. But Elliot does haunt the book. I'm very wary of saying that somehow because it sounds so crashingly kind of up myself. But... He did feel very, very present for some reason.
0: He's hugely present. I mean, you know, just linguistically, the echoes and the, mm. you know. Indeed, it may be, I mean, I just ask this for my own curiosity as much as anything. It closes with a character where a man alone, barely glimpsed, tall, suited, owlish, short hair, watered flat, severely parted, head down, hurrying. He said he had not done no work of... Kind that augments vortices not for months, he would return home nightly from the bank and fall into a leaden slumber until bedtime. Is is this centre parted banker Elliot himself or a familiar compound ghost?
1: In my head, it was meant to be Elliot or Elliot's ghost. That last scene of the book is at Lloyd's, of London, the Richard Rogers Lloyd's building in 86, which is also the year that. um, I think it was Amstrad, launched the first widely available home computers. I'm slightly wary of sort of seeming like I'm overreaching myself, but a big influence on this book was a, a book by Hugh Kenner called um, The Pound Era, about the yeah about the great London vortex. That closing sentence that you just read, we acknowledge in the prelims at the front is a paraphrase it's a reworked version of a sentence in the Pound era so if you are super sleuth you can at the end of the book you can tie up the knot yeah it's kind of where Kenner sort of talks about this moment when Pound is beseeching Elliot to get involved and you make it new and blast and all the rest of it and Elliot's trying to work in a bank and you know So on, it's um. So yes, he it is is remarkably close. One reason, and I don't mean to go on about it too much, but a slightly less intellectual reason was some years ago when I lived in Manchester. A friend of mine's son was listening to me talking to his mother in a car. This woman had been sort of right at the heart of the whole Manchester thing, you know, the sort of factory thing and. Joy Division and all that stuff. And so she and I were nattering away. And after a while, this nine-year-old broke in with the disarming statement. When you and mummy talk about punk, it sounds like grandma talking about the war. And I thought about that. And I suddenly realized that where maybe our parents Generation and their parents' generation, their coalescent experience as young people was World War. What was ours? It was pop music, basically. It was pop music, shopping, and technology in that order. And I think that we do, or some of us, not all of us, we did grow up through a a phase where we had an almost exaggeratedly intense relation to music. And People seem to have extraordinary narrative recall, particularly people who witnessed, for want of a better word, punk. They can know exactly where they were when they bought some stupid T-shirt or trudged off somewhere to find some obscure record or see some ghastly event. The, there is this sort of magnetism back to that period. And it's an odd one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's totally trivial. I and mean, It's just pop music. Who cares? On the other hand, I know quite a few people who, in all seriousness, their lives were shaped by it. You know, they made decisions which are still affecting them, for better or worse. You know, so that that relationship, I suppose, to some form of intense experience that maybe they didn't quite understand, but it had a huge effect on them, is within the book.
0: Why do you think that is? I mean, and do you think that's kind of a special characteristic of the generation that kind of crested adulthood in the punk and post-punk era? I mean, do you think children, young people now have the same sort of intensity of tribal experience with music or do you think that's changed?
1: I can't possibly speak for the younger generation now and I'm also very aware that every cultural group is going to have their own feelings about, about this. I think that it's partly just youth. I wonder whether, you know, probably people in America, for instance, who were part of the generation who, you know, to do with the draft and the counterculture and Woodstock and all that stuff. When you were young, if you want the pause of your consciousness are sort of very wide open to receive you know I mean you you just have something to do with being young I guess the relation to music I think is slightly different because you can make the point quite persuasively not wanting to be a bore that between 1956 and 1986 pop music and rock music was an astonishing forge of creativity and ideas I mean Across all genres, you know, I mean, however seriously or otherwise one takes it, musicians in pop and rock music were doing unbelievably interesting and beautiful things, thrilling things, which seems to tail off a bit. I don't think I'm just looking back with generational prejudice to that period. I, I, I think it's hard to say that pop and rock music sustained that degree of creativity. Beyond the late 80s, there's still obviously wonderful music being made, there always is, but if you sort of think in the, take a year like 1972, the records that came out were just, you know, astonishing.
0: That thing of it being London as well, I'm wondering you'll have a better sense than I do of how the centre of gravity culturally has moved, because one feels like times, I guess. Mm swinging Carnaby Street or the mm. centre of punk, which was kind of quite London-based. Mm. Were there times in which it, you know, obviously we look at, I don't know, the late 80s and suddenly it's Manchester or it's, you know, it's Northern Soul in the 90s. I mean, mm. is there a sort of dialectical thing where it hovers in and out of London, do you think? Or is London always the centre?
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, I, as I say, I'm, I'm from suburban London. I think at the late 70s, certainly, definitely the whole punk thing was very London-centric, although, as we all know, it's, it's spread out, and people started picking up on the effect of it all over. I think that in Manchester, or in Sheffield, or Leeds, Liverpool, they all have their own sort of scenes, and it. it I suppose I'm just constantly staggered about quite how sophisticated. A lot of the stuff people were trying to do was I mean you sort of I mean I remember speaking to Phil Oakey from the Human League, the singer in the Human League, and him talking about growing up in Sheffield in the late seventies and what they were quite how extreme their ambitions were, you know, that to to make music to find new territory. And Ditto with Martin Fry, the singer from ABC again in, in Sheffield. I mean, they started life as a very sort of, you know, avant-garde setup called Vice Versa. And it's funny because it would probably get slightly sneered at now, but I have spoken to people from those backgrounds and they say quite openly, oh, yeah, you know, we thought Dada was great. They might have ended up making big, glossy pop records, but those... Early inspirations. I think punk authorised people to go nuts in some ways, and and often. And some of it was just you know bad, but some of it was genuinely inventive.
0: Can I ask a bit about the technique and the style of the book? Because it's hmm. you know there are a lot of characters in it. There's the the sort of eye of the book. Yeah, it seems to be not always stable, or at least you you get these people. You know, as you say, a girl sitting in a cafe. You get. You know, there's another character who goes to a dinner party with mm. Bill Burroughs. Is that you or versions of you or real people you knew? Or is it is it more elliptical it's, than that? What,
1: uh, every story and every anecdote in the book is true. So I haven't... nothing is made up. I didn't want it to be a memoir. At the same time, I certainly wouldn't have had... A, a, I don't think... She, wasn't right to try to turn it into fiction. I don't think I'd have been able to. Oddly, the I's and she's and they's and we's almost wrote themselves. They kind of dictated themselves to me, the sort of points of view. I have to say it was phenomenally difficult to write. I'd like to get that off my chest. It took years. And it's only 17,000 words, for heaven's sake. You know what I mean? it, But it took a very, very long time. There was so much of it. At one point, it was 45,000 words long. And so much of it just had to go because the moment that it went off the path it wanted to go down, it became, I don't know, just wasn't alive I know that sounds horribly so of like I'm such a grandiose claim I mean it did feel maybe every writer feels that with a book but yeah every scene in it is true some of it I used to make my living as a freelance journalist a sort of jack of all trades really and so I got to interview some interesting people Quentin Crisp appears in the book for instance and you know he was somebody that I did interview in in New York towards the end of his life and
0: in the Dirty Flat.
1: In the Dirty Flat, yeah. Yeah, did you go there as well? No, no, but no, no, the Dirty no, no, Flat no. <laughs> was famous. I never met well, the, the, flat was, the flat was pretty bad. You know, like the William Burroughs?
0: Yes, did you know Burroughs?
1: I met him twice because I was friends with Cathy Acker. When Cathy moved to London in the 80s, you know, I was working as a civil servant, so it's quite odd that we should have our paths should have crossed, but they did. And she was obviously, she was very, very much um, in the thrall of Burroughs. And so when he was in London, I tagged along and that party did actually happen. Yeah, he was pretty terrifying, I I thought. And I think also that at that time, you know, particularly in that first half of of the 80s, at exactly the same time that great pop records by the Human League or ABC or Mark Almond or whatever were coming out, there was another strand going on in London that had come out of punk, which was very connected to the occult. And that's not a world I know or particularly want to know anything about, but it was there. So the book does touch in a couple of places on that very quite dark, quite mysterious crevice of London during post-punk. Hmm. And obviously Burroughs was very important to all those people.
0: Yeah, you say he was scary. In what mm. in what sense?
1: I'm sure, you know, he was regarded, you know, as a sort of bit of a punk hero kind of or whatever. My impression of him was that this was an intensely patrician gentleman. To speak in terms of class, I mean he was thoroughly aristocratic. I mean he his bearing, his beautiful dark suit he had on, the way he smoked, you know, everything. I mean, this was somebody who came from terrific social self-assurance. At the same time, when he looked at you, you did have the momentary sense was, is this a sort of contemporary human being (laughs) occupied by the spirit of something very ancient and not necessarily benign? I mean, he could, he the, those death, death, head eyes, and then this extraordinary voice. He sounded like W. C. Fields, and there's,
0: there's various recordings of it, they? very sepulchral sort of thing. yeah, dead fingers talk. And then...
1: he was extraordinary. I think also he knew that a, an awful lot of people just sort of wanted to meet him because they thought he stood for something, and I think he was probably fairly bored. With that, I mean, thank God they didn't have selfies. I mean, can you imagine? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You're very much
0: not a sentimental writer, I would Mm. say. I mean, that is a compliment. Were you conscious when you're writing about a period that is so formative for you, so emotionally important to you, of nostalgia as a kind of tar pit Mm. into which you want to avoid falling?
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah.
0: And how do you avoid falling into it?
1: With immense difficulty, I think that that was an absolute ever-present and remains a kind of a a concern. I mean, it's only my opinion, but I think what one has to do is deny oneself a lot of self-satisfactions in the writing. I mean, like a lot of the music in the book, and there isn't actually that much music in the book, I was very aware that I couldn't just write about records I liked or, you know, something like that. They had to be, they had to be magnetized, is the only way I can put it, to this particular piece of writing. For instance, there was one part of the book I wrote at one stage which was set in the earlier 70s when I, I was at school and I, I went to a sort of, you know, typical boring school in Surrey nothing much to say about it at all sort of Victorian kind of place it was a science school actually which um, baffles me to this day but at one point I did write a bit about the presence of music within an an all boys school in the early 70s and that began to To really interest me, at some point, I would love to try to write about school, because I think it's such a fascinating subject, and oddly one that a lot of those writers from the 30s we were talking about were fascinated by as well. But again, you have to be careful of of nostalgia. Nostalgia is very close to kitsch. And someone once told me that one of the definitions of kitsch is that it is that which is discarded and unwanted and thrown out. Have you heard that? Uh, And, you know, there's a sentimentality in kitsch, and I think, you know, there's a sentimentality in nostalgia. And also, like, I don't know, when you see Point Fingers, but, you know, sometimes you see these exhibitions that crop up these days, you know, and sort of somewhere about some group or other. And you see lots of sort of men of my age who look like they drive mini cabs, you know, sort of queuing up, all wearing the black T shirt and you know, it's a kind of just, you know it's um it's a it's a risk.
0: One of the things which again is a is a matter of technique, but I was curious. You're very sparing with main verbs. Mm. You know, there's a lot of verbless sentences. Was that an attempt to kind of a, a conscious attempt to take it out of time a little bit or take it out of the sequence of events
1: yes yeah but I wanted to try to return a sense of the present to the past you know I know it's another cliche really but the whole kind of I am a camera thing I wanted to definitely yes try to try to make the writing as um yeah, almost like you're. I mean, funnily enough, I mean now I'm beginning to get bits of feedback uh, about the book. One person, you know, very flatteringly said that it was like being invited into a lucid dream, which I I'm very happy if that's the if that's the effect. To try to get into to it like that, I've tried writing other books in in the past, and I have to say that this this one, and it's barely a book. I mean, it's a long essay, but. And I haven't really tried to publish anything of my own, as they say, you know, in other words, a non commissioned piece of work for 20 years. uh, 20 was over 20 years. I think I last published some fiction, I think it was going to age me, in like the year 2000, I think, and then went off and did other things. And there has been something very mysterious about trying to write this I don't know why and I'm not trying to make any claims for it I'm not trying to say anything about its literary merit or otherwise I, I haven't got a clue but simply as a personal exercise it has felt a bit odd I don't know if that's a good adverb for anything but maybe it's just our generation's relation to memory maybe that's what it maybe what it is the point where age addresses youth you know
0: Michael Bracewell, thank you very much indeed
1: thank you Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, um, don't feel don't really you have to review it. Um, and equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk.